Welcome to our podcast, Oncology Morning Commute, targeted therapies for gastroesophageal and colorectal cancers. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals and Daiichi Sanko Incorporated. In this episode, Dr. John Marshall and Dr. Howard Hoxter discuss HER2 expression in gastric, gastroesophageal junction, and colorectal cancer, and the potential role for targeted therapies for these cancers. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash solid tumors five. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Marshall is a professor and chief of hematology oncology at Georgetown University, Washington, D.C. Dr. Hoxter is a distinguished professor of medicine and associate cancer center director of Rutgers Cancer Institute in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I am Candace Hoffman, managing editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Marshall will begin our discussion. Hey, everybody. My name is Dr. John Marshall from Georgetown University, and I want to welcome you all to our podcast. I am joined by a very good friend and an incredible thought leader in the space of GI cancers, Dr. Howard Hoxter. And Howard, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, John. It's a, it's a pleasure, and I always enjoy uh, our discussions back and forth when uh, we get together and talk about these things. So I hope uh, the listeners will enjoy as well. And Howard and I have known each other a long time, and we do not always agree on how things are done. And we actually share a variety of patients who travel up and down the eastern seaboard trying to get the right answer for their problem. And so it's always uh, good to hear each other's opinion about things. We're, we're good at level setting uh, each other in many ways. And our, our focus for today is going to be on targeted therapies for gastroesophageal and colorectal cancers. And in specific, we're really going to drill down on HER2 and how it's expressed in gastric GE junction and well as colorectal cancer. And Howard, if you'll permit me, I think I want to give a little intro background and then let you drill down on this uh, a bit more. But when I think about HER2, we always think about breast cancer. And I can remember the day, I bet you do too, when it used to be bad to be HER2 positive breast cancer. That was only a marker of negative prognosis and there was nothing much you could do about it. Totally. Lo and behold, now you want to be HER2 positive breast cancer because you tend to have uh, have the best uh, outcomes. Maybe tell us a little bit about the evolution of that in other cancers. I think the understanding of HER2 goes back to the 90s when people were understanding growth factor receptors and how that played a role in breast cancer growth along with EGFR. HER2 was found to be a negative prognostic factor. And I think we all owe debt of um, gratitude to uh, Denny Slayman and his work on the expression and the um, underlying biology of HER2 overexpression and cell stimulation. But it's not only negative from that point of view and prognostic uh, negatively, but it's turned out to be a target. You can hang a hat on it. And there are lots of ways that you can uh, attack HER2 to turn off that cell signaling pathway. So that's been the other side of the coin that, as John said, it's 
gone from being a negative factor to now uh, we can direct some therapies towards it. Yeah, I think about the evolution of that and the impact. I mean, we spent a lot of time and effort, you know this about me, focusing on breast cancer research in the hopes that the studies and the progress we would make in breast cancer would, if you will, trickle down to the other cancers. And HER2 may in fact be one of those places where uh, it does relate to other cancers. And, you know, if we begin to look at the expression levels in our GI cancers, we see that in gastric cancer, GE junctions, primarily adenocarcinomas, uh, you can see HER2 overexpression in colorectal cancers, primarily, again, in those patients who are RAS and BRAF wild type. That's where you find HER2 positivity. And, you know, you see expression frequencies all over the map. What, what's your percentage in your experience of patients in gastric and colorectal that are positive for HER2? Yeah, that's a really good question and an important point. I mean, for people who are general practitioners where you're used to having a good 30% of breast cancer HER2 positive, you're going to have your heart broken by looking at colon cancer because it's only 4 or 5%. If you limit it to those who are RAS wild type, which they almost all are, then you'll be up to 8 to 9%, but it's still a lot of negative patients. Uh, gastric's a little bit better, I think, in general. We, I, I tend to think of it about 20% in our population of um, United States-based gastric cancer adenocarcinomas where there's HER2 overexpression. But, and you know, the, with a lot more breast cancer out there and a lot higher incidence, you can do the trials. I mean, we've struggled to do HER2-positive trials in um, gastric and GE junction cancers. And colon cancer, it's even a bigger struggle. It really takes a worldwide effort. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a challenge. One other thing I like to compare to breast cancer in is sort of the potency of this pathway. So in in breast cancer, uh, you know, if you're HER2 positive, it's a little bit like your own Suez Canal. If you shove a freighter in there and block that pathway, the whole world knows you really shut down that cell. But in GI cancers. Yeah, the pathway works, but it's not nearly as potent. It's like there's always a kind of workaround. You can find a different harbor or a different canal to get your boat through, a different bridge to get into Canada. How about that? That's a current event one. Yeah, I kind of think of it more like a portal vein thrombosis where you have collaterals, but I get your point on the uh, on the Suez Canal and the bridges over the uh, Canadian border. Yeah, so it's like, you know, we, we, our expectations of benefit, if we steal them from the breast cancer expectations, might again be a bit dampened because our benefits don't seem to last as long. We haven't been able to demonstrate benefit in the adjuvant setting, for example, or beyond first-line therapy, which has always confused me why, you know, why it would work in one kind of cancer but doesn't work in uh, our GI cancers uh, through lines of therapy. And, Part of the story we're here to tell about is that we found something that, that might just change that. But uh, I think one of the important points is, even though it's rarer in these cancers, you know, physicians need to test. You're not going to find uh, the patients unless you really test everyone. And it isn't as rewarding as uh, finding the HER2 overexpressors of uh, breast cancer, but they're out there. 
And so don't give up. Yeah, and your, your point is exactly spot on. And I see many, many cases, um, both my own, where I see that I failed to run the tests or haven't run it appropriately, but more often in patients who get referred to us that you know their their primary team has not done her to testing in in the, uh, gastric and G junction and colorectal and tell me a little bit about what you do in your practice when how do you manage this let's make it metastatic disease for either of these cancers when when's your timeline on testing for her too and how do you do it well um like many places today, I think for gastric cancer, we have um, default testing using immunohistochemistry, but we haven't really gotten to that point with colon cancer yet, uh, probably from lack of a regulatory approval. But you know, we went to our pathologists after the original TOGA trial and said, you got to test all the gastrics. So usually we get that done. In addition, I think that uh, frequently when people are progressing or they have metastatic disease, we send either uh, some kind of NGS testing on the tumor tissue or on the circulating tumor DNA, and you'll see ERBB2 overexpression if your test of choice includes the expression data. But I think those are all the different ways you can find out if somebody has HER2 overexpression today. Yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with this a bit because particularly in gastric, but also true sometimes in colon, is that there's not that much tissue around. No. And you've done, a, you know, an alligator clip biopsy by a gastroenterologist and broad molecular testing often requires, you know, a decent amount of tissue if you're going to look at, say, a next-gen sequence plus immunohistochemistry and the like. So we've been partnering strategically with groups that do broad molecular testing here in our, our network. And um, that can sometimes be a barrier. So it falls on us as oncologists to know what do we got? How, how big's the tissue? And particularly with neoadjuvants, I've been thinking about this a lot in patients where say GE junction cancers, where we're giving neoadjuvant and the only biopsy that you have from the beginning is again, a small biopsy and then you treat the patient, and then they have metastatic disease, you really ought to probably get new tissue. You know, I'm kind of uncomfortable still equating the genetic testing, the RB testing that you were talking about, the amplification versus the immunohistochemistry, uh, IHC fish approach. And do you think that's the same and is it translatable in your opinion, or do you think we really need to get the tissue-based IHC testing in everybody? Well, I think there's a little variability in the testing, and I think that there's also a difference between tissue tumor expression and the mRNA expression that can be detected in a blood test. On the other hand, the correlation levels are pretty high. It's not 100%, but you know, it's probably at least 90%. And I think when it comes to all the time delays for scheduling biopsies and getting the tissue or trying to get tissue from other institutions, that's one of our biggest problems that can take weeks. You know, if they had um, tumor reharvested in the past, either from a biopsy or even from a gastric resection, I mean, just getting that can take a month. So in that case, I find that the 
blood ctDNA testing is really very helpful. Yeah, it can be. And uh, you know, with tumor variability too, um, it may help us overcome that. You know, I think about we're used to the rules of what IHC-ish testing is for breast cancer, but in point of fact, the, the, the rules for GI cancer are not exactly the same. What a pathologist will call positive for one is not necessarily the same. And I think many of our pathologists don't necessarily know that, is that the rules that were used for, say, TOGA and some of the newer studies are less strict than the breast criteria. So we have a slightly variable bar even um, when it comes to HER2 testing. So I, I think we are in lockstep agreement that testing needs to be done early. One of the things I have tried to do, I wish electronic medical records did this for us, but is to make the first line of my HPI a listing of the molecular tests. And if I don't know what the molecular tests are, then, you know, if I don't know the result, I leave it up there as a blank that's, you know, still pending or unknown so that at least I'm tracking it uh, and know what I've got and don't have. I, you know, it's the no self-respecting breast cancer doc would ever, you know, present a case to uh, another doc with, in a, without the ERPR, HER2, et cetera. And I think mm -hmm. culturally we need to be doing the same as we talk to each other about our GI cancer case. Yeah, I agree with you totally. That's kind of the way that I'm writing my um, progress notes now. I'll put in there the diagnosis and then parentheses, MMR proficient, HER2 negative, PD-1 score, CPS score, whatever. I think those are key top line things that we need to put in our progress notes and our histories. And, and also, I, I agree with you that uh, when I attend tumor boards, which is pretty much every week, I'm frequently the one asking, well, what's the molecular data show? So uh, in GI cancer, we need to um, get to more awareness of, of these issues. But uh, I think we're making progress. We definitely are. But I think your point about tumor board is a great one because we need our gastroenterologists and our surgeons and everybody else to be in the loop on uh, these things as well as they are uh, in breast cancer. Let's kind of shift gears. So testing matters. The frequency is enough that you will find these patients. How you test and when you test matters. And now we've got some novel approaches to therapies. And I think one of the coolest new areas that we have is this antibody drug conjugate uh, strategy, which you know, is kind of this hybrid between using the monoclonal antibody that we're familiar with to sort of block, or in this case, prevent hybridization or dimerization, but also carrying a payload, a kind of smart bomb. I don't know the language you use on these drugs, but you know, if you can hook something to the end, you've got a, a smart bomb technology that seeks out and sticks to your cancer uh, and then carries along a payload, whether it's radiation or a chemotherapy agent. Um, uh, you know, this was space age is now reality. I mean, it's pretty cool stuff. What do you think? Yes, um, I'm, I'm uh, using a more of a classical history approach. I kind of say it's more like a Trojan horse, but that's okay. It's, it, it does have a long history in, in cancer therapy too. Seattle Genetics started testing out antibodies with adriamycin 25 years ago. It's just that 
the technology wasn't quite there between the immunogenicity of the antibodies and the linker technology so that the payload actually stayed stuck onto the antibody and then better payloads. It's been a while, but I think this class of drugs has really come of age recently. And so they have the antibody that can target whatever, and we're seeing various types of um, targets besides HER2 out there that are being looked at with ADCs and then um, some kind of very potent poison. Uh, you know, they in the, back in the beginning, they were also testing ricin. So you literally would poison the cell. <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, uh, these are really interesting. And then either antibodies or peptides can be used even to localize radiation. So now we're seeing like uh, lutetium PRRT for neuroendocrine tumors. It's, it's kind of like the same concept as these ADCs, even though yeah. it's not an antibody. Yeah, I agree. This is not going away. And so it's like in the trastuzumab approach, it may be dual mechanism where, yeah, you're interfering with the growth pathway, but you're also delivering um, the, the payload. Um, some of these others that you mentioned may be just the payload concept and that you have to find a, a, a good target that's on the cancer that's not on the normal. So, um, yes, uh, John, these are, you know, important um, targets. And um, I think the other really interesting aspect of it besides the ADCs are the number of options that we have today. Uh, for HER2 especially, we've got the anti-HER2 antibody, We've got the antibodies that prevent dimerization. We've got some um, newer engineered antibodies that may have more ADCC. And then we've got small molecule inhibitors of the um, HER2 receptor. So in a way we have um, a plethora of um, approaches and uh, some of these have worked out in the clinic and some haven't, but it does give us opportunities for various approaches, first, second, and third line. I'll add to that the fact that, you know, like in breast cancer, there is some increasing requirements to retest patients for HER2 expression that over time through lines of therapy, they may lose their HER2 dominance, if you will, that cancers are in fact polyclonal. And with one line of therapy, we may wipe out the HER2 expressing subclones and therefore through lines of therapy, we may not see the same benefit. So I do think we will be taking those lessons as well from our breast cancer colleagues that may in fact help explain why we fail to see the sort of continuation of benefit through lines of therapy in uh, GI cancers because of maybe loss of the, the target or loss of the dominance. Uh, of the pathway. So my, my suspicion is we will be doing repeat testing. Some of the clinical trials that are looking at these other agents, uh, in fact, require repeat testing or at least require uh, tissue acquisition so that we can test later. Others have not. So as we drill down on some of the clinical trials as they emerge over the years ahead, I think that will be an important lesson to learn about the need for retesting in the second and subsequent lines of therapy. Yeah, level of expression is a really interesting question. And in the NSABP trials, it seems like some people who are HER2 low are 
very low expression also benefit. So it, it will be interesting, but here's where I'm looking for the blood tests, you know, to for the circulating tumor DNA and RNA to be more informative than to have to go back to doing multiple biopsies. So, you know, hopefully as we develop a large enough database, we'll be able to sort some of these things out. And for those listening in, the blood tests are being used as entry criteria for many of the HER2 trials uh, that are going on around the country. So uh, if you do have a patient that fits one of these categories um, and are looking for options, um, certainly repeating circulating tumor blood testing to confirm HER2 or BB upregulation um, is appropriate and may help identify patients eligible for these studies. So, you know, in our, our next podcast, we're going to be really looking at some of this newest data that's out there in our GI cancer space using these uh, antibody drug conjugates. And uh, I think uh, it, it's going to revolutionize in many ways what we're doing, lines of therapy that we're using these medicines in, the side effects that uh, they bring forward are a bit different. We can talk about those as well. So, you know, just to kind of reiterate, we need to be testing colon cancer and gastroesophageal cancers uh, for HER2, as well as other targets um, that we didn't mention in our podcast. So that's got to be a standard of care. Uh, and when you identify these patients, you've got novel therapeutic approaches, both FDA approved and soon guideline approved. Uh, treatments for these HER2-positive gastroesophageal junction and gastric cancer patients, as well as colon cancer patients. So, Howard, thanks a lot for joining me on this podcast. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure uh, to share opinions and uh, approaches with you. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash solid tumors five. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.